Thanks for leading us, Danny. <clears throat> Danny led worship at our very first worship service, 10 years and a week ago today, right? Uh, it was awesome. We, uh, I met Danny a few months before that, and I said, hey, we're starting a church in Denver, and uh, he was kind of a traveling musician at that time, touring and writing music and doing really cool stuff, and I said, would you be willing to lead worship for us, and he did that for the first several months, and then kind of sporadically on, so um, thanks for being back and helping us out today. Um, <clears throat> let's jump in. Uh, it's estimated that the average American adult makes 35,000 conscious decisions a day. Can you believe that? 35,000? Um, now, the large majority of those decisions are small, and you might not even be aware of them, um, but since I started talking 10 seconds ago, you've had to decide whether to keep listening, right? Uh, whether to look out the window at the trees, whether to scratch your knee that itches, whether to cover your yawn, whether to look at your phone to see if anyone's texted you, right? And, and most of these decisions we do, and we're not even aware of them, and yet we're making them all the time. And most of them are small, and they don't seem to, to see, make a big difference in the grand scheme of things. But what about the bigger decisions, what about those decisions we do make every day that seem to affect our lives every day? How about that problem at work? You know, should I bring it up with my boss or not? Should I ignore it and just hope that it goes away? Should I buy a new car? Should I buy a used car? Should I keep driving the car I've got? Should I go to men's retreat next weekend? Yes, you should. That's an easy one, right? Should I cancel my gym membership? I haven't gone in two months. <clears throat> Should I sign up for a gym membership? I need to lose a few pounds, right? Should I try out for a new sport at school? Should I make plans for Thanksgiving? These are decisions we think about every day, and they're the things we think about when we go to sleep at night. They're often the things we think about when we wake up in the morning. Um, we'll just call them sort of medium-level decisions. But then there's the really big ones. The big ones we make in our lives that don't just alter the course of our days, but maybe alter the course of months or years or the entire trajectory of our lives. Should I switch careers? Should I consider retiring? Should I, should I move to a more affordable place? Is he the one? Is she the one? What college should I attend? Should I even go to college? Maybe I should get a job instead. And for a lot of these decisions, there's not a clear right and wrong. Our faith doesn't seem like it can help us a whole lot. There's not a, a verse in the Bible that tells me whether I should stay in my career or I should switch careers. And for a lot of these medium level or even major level decisions, we can get stuck. We can get in this place where we're just not sure to, what to do. There's a, several options out there, and they all seem like good options, and so we're not sure which to take. Or they all seem like bad options, and we're not sure which one to take. And we can feel paralyzed in these moments, stuck, unsure where to go or what to do. Today, I want to read you a story uh, from the Old Testament. <clears throat> it's about a guy who got stuck. He was faced with a big decision he had to make, and he had to figure out how to get unstuck. In fact, for the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different stories from four different guys who were all kings in the Old Testament, and all faced circumstances in their lives that came at them and forced them to either make decisions about something, to respond to something, to, to face something that they maybe weren't expecting they were going to have to face. 
And two of them navigated their situations really well, and two of them didn't navigate their situations very well at all. And so today we're going to look at one of those stories. Um, if you want to read along, you can. It's in the book of First Kings, uh, which is in the Old Testament. Um, we're going to look at a story from First Kings uh, 12. Um, and, and yet I need to give you a little bit of context first for, for all of these stories. And I want to show you a map. Let's put a map up on the screen. Um, after Israel settled the promised land, and we actually talked about that. Do you remember when we talked about that last week? Uh, they crossed the Jordan River, which I have the pointer, right? That's the Jordan River right there. And so they came by and they crossed the Jordan River and they settled in the West, mostly in um, what was called the promised land at that time. And then they went through this phase where there were 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they settled in all different places in that general area. And for a number of years, um, they were ruled by these tribal leaders. These tribal leaders were called uh, judges. But after a while, um, they finally decided, you know, we need a king. We need a, an enduring institution. We need some sort of administration that can oversee this entire nation and really pull us together because up until that time, the tribes have been often scattered and very divided. And so Saul was chosen as the first king of the nation of Israel, and he reigned for about 40 years. And then David became the second king of the nation of Israel, and he also reigned for about 40 years. And this happens about roughly 1000 BC, if you're looking for sort of a time frame. And David was one of the most uh, important kings. He came from the specific tribe of Judah, which had settled in the southern part of Israel. And he was actually the one that attacked a city that was still being held by Canaanites. The city was called Jerusalem. He attacks and conquers this city, and he makes Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the land, he makes Jerusalem the capital of the entire nation. And he locates his court and all of his officials there. When David died, his son Solomon became king, and he ruled from Jerusalem as well. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was next in line to be king. And that's where we pick up the story. This is what it says, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. I'll show you where that is in just a second. For all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, different person, slightly different name, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So let's put the map back up there. See Shechem? It's up in what we would say is the central part of Israel at the time, and it's really um, a primary city in the more northern part of Israel. It was a major city. It was central. It was on trade routes. There were many other uh, routes and roads that led to it. It had a long history. Shechem actually went back to the time of Abraham. Um, it was actually one of the places where all the leaders of Israel had gathered when they first entered the promised land to make some key decisions. It had a history that went back before even Jerusalem became the capital. So some of the leaders from Israel, probably leaders from the northern tribes of Israel, gathered in Shechem, and they invited Rehoboam to come up and make his case for being the next king. He wouldn't become king just because he was the son of Solomon. He had to come up and make his case and, in essence, get the leaders to ratify this decision for him to become king. 
So going up to Shechem was kind of like the primary, right? This was like going to Vermont, right, to get all the people in Vermont to gather the support of these early important voters who would decide if he was going to be the right king. And you would think it would be easy for Rehoboam because he was Solomon's son, right? And what we know about Solomon, he was a very wise and a popular leader, right? Well, not really. He, he was wise, but he had actually lost some of the popular support of the people during his reign. He, he had done some things. He had his share of faults and his share of weaknesses. He had married many foreign wives. And at that time in the ancient Near East, when you married a foreign wife, especially someone uh, who was a part of an administration of a foreign nation, you created all of these entangling foreign alliances. And Israel had gotten wrapped up in some of those, and those had not been good. He also launched massive, this is Solomon, remember, he launched massive building projects during his reign. Probably the most well-known is he built the temple there in Jerusalem. He built this massive temple in Jerusalem. But what you might not know is he also built a massive palace for himself. The palace took way longer than the temple to build and was a whole lot bigger than the temple he built for God. And whenever you build really big and lavish construction projects, what do you need a lot of? Money and labor, right? And so in order to pay for all of this, Solomon had raised taxes on the people and he had forced many Israelites into forced labor, which created a lot of popular resentment, especially among the people who lived in the central and northern parts of Israel that were not near the capital. Now there was one guy who was feeding a lot of this popular resentment towards these taxes that had been raised and all of this unfair labor that had been pushed on him. His name was Bernie Sanders. <laughs> um, maybe not. But people were feeling the burn <laughs> with Jeroboam. Because Jeroboam was actually this guy, he was the one, and he was actually part of Solomon's administration, but he had been pointing out some of the unfair policies and the taxes that had been raised on the people, and he had even led this minor rebellion against Solomon, and so he had been forced into exile during Solomon's rule in Egypt, and when Jeroboam gets word that Solomon has died, he comes back to Shechem, and he gathers the leaders there to help them decide if they want to make Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the next king. And so the story continues, and this is what it says. So they, that's the people, sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam, and they said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So here's Rehoboam, and he has a big decision to make. Because the people are basically saying, we will crown you as king, but you're going to have to make some significant changes. You can't have the same policies your dad had. You've got to chart a new way. You've got to make massive changes to what's been happening. You need to address some of the things that we're pointing out to you. You're going to have to lead differently than your father did, and that probably you've been trained to lead. 
And so Rehoboam has a big decision to make. What kind of leader is he going to be? What kind of king does he want to be? And it's not a, it's not a decision that just packs, impacts Rehoboam's personal future, but it's going to impact the future of the entire nation. And you can imagine that he felt stuck at this point, not really sure what to do, because he would have to break with tradition. He would have to break with everything he had been taught in order to address what the people are saying needs to be addressed. Now, obviously we're not kings, right? And we're not faced with these kinds of decisions, but we also have decisions to make in our own lives. We also get into places where we feel stuck, where we're not sure, where some people are saying you need to do this and others are saying you need to do this, and we're not sure what the best course of action is. Maybe you feel stuck right now, maybe in your job, maybe in a family situation, maybe a relationship, maybe a financial situation, maybe something that's been going on at school. Maybe you just feel stuck and you're not sure what to do. You're not sure how to get unstuck. And that's why this story is so helpful. Because in this moment where Rehoboam is faced with a big decision about his future and how he's going to navigate it, he actually does one of the smartest and wisest things he could possibly do. Something that we all need to do when we face an important decision in our lives. He goes and he decides to seek some counsel and advice from others. Look at verse 6. It says, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So so Rehoboam gets some great advice from people who had served with his father in his father's administration. So these were people older than Rehoboam. They're called elders. They're people who had seen Solomon make mistakes up close and seen the consequences of Solomon's mistakes. And so they had a perspective probably that even Rehoboam didn't have so much that they could give him this advice. And really, this is great advice for any leader. If you're in any sort of leadership position, basically they say this, look, you need to serve the people. And if you will serve the people, and if you will address these needs that they've raised with you and make some changes, well, then they'll always follow you, and they'll always serve you. It's great advice. Look at how Rehoboam responds. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him, and he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke? your father put on us. The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the young punks, right? (laughs) 
his buddies who grew up with him. They say, Rehoboam, you don't need to take all this. These people are just whining and complaining, right? You're the king. They do what you say, right? They serve you. You don't take orders from them. You stand up and you tell them that you're in charge now. You tell them that your little finger is bigger than your dad's waist, right? And this is kind of a strange uh, saying, but it's actually a euphemism, which means it's a nice way of saying something crude. They're basically saying, look, if you think my dad was a man, if you think he was tough, you have not seen anything yet. I'm a real man. I'm the tough one. And when I'm in charge, things are going to get really tough. So this is the counsel his friends give him. And it's really the counsel that any ancient Near Eastern king would have received. It's the way most kings in the ancient Near East would have led their nations. And in fact, it's probably the counsel that Rehoboam wanted to hear. It's what he had been trained to be and how he had been trained to lead his whole life. And it's no surprise that that's the counsel that Rehoboam took. Look at what happens next. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and he said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. So Rehoboam took his friend's advice, and you can imagine what happened. The consequences were disastrous. I'm not gonna, we're not going to read the rest of the story right now. You can go home and read it. It's in 1 Kings chapter 12. But just to summarize it for you, First Kings tells us that when the people heard this, they rebelled against Rehoboam. They rejected him as king, and they declared war on the southern tribe of Judah, where he was from. So Rehoboam tried to make things right, and he sent an official to meet with them. Apparently, he's still in Shechem, and he sends an official to try to smooth things over. It happens to be the official who's in charge of Taxes and forced labor. And they stone him dead. And in fact, the text tells us that Rehoboam himself barely escapes with his life from Shechem. He hops in a chariot and he's able to escape the people and make it back to the capital of Jerusalem in the south. And following this episode, the nation descended into civil war. The ten northern tribes of Israel decided to make Jeroboam their king, while Rehoboam stayed the king just over the tribe of Judah and were able to talk the small tribe of Benjamin into joining them. And from this time on, there are parallel histories. The ten northern tribes keep the name of Israel, and the two southern tribes take the name of Judah. And the rest of the Old Testament tells the tragic story of these two nations going side by side with their own sets of kings, always at war with one another. 
Now, there's a lot of things going on in this story that we could talk about. There's a really uh, a bigger picture narrative that's happening. If you were able to step back and read the whole narrative, you'd see that some of the problems that come up here aren't problems that just come onto the scene without any cause. That there were things that happened during David's reign and certainly things that happened during Solomon's reign that had sowed the seeds of division here. And God actually knew that this was going to happen. He foresaw all of these problems going on. And so we could step back and talk about how God was, was still sovereign and he still loved the nation and he was still able to work within this nation as dysfunctional as it became. But I think the very specific story of Rehoboam provides a couple of really important lessons for all of us, really practical lessons that can help us out whenever we face important decisions in life or feel like we're stuck and aren't sure what to do. So here's a couple of really practical lessons. First lesson, when you're faced with a big decision, seek good counsel from others. Right? You need to talk to some other people. You need to hear their perspective. You need to talk to some people who have some wisdom to offer, who are maybe outside of the circumstances, who, who are not emotionally involved, they're not a part of the situation, but they can step back and they can provide you a bigger picture perspective. Um, I remember uh, many years ago when Janice and I were dating, um, about six months into our relationship, we broke up because um, I didn't think she was the one. Blasphemy, right? Um, uh, I had seen all of these faults in her, and um, I'm sure if you've gotten to know her, you've seen all the character flaws as well, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> at the time, though, our relationship, uh, we have been dating for about six months, and it just lost some of its magic, and I didn't realize, like, that's pretty much what happens in every relationship about six to nine months in. Um, so it was easy for me at that time to just focus on the things that I, I didn't like about her, and so we took this two-week break, right, to go think about it and pray about it and figure things out. Um, and I was pretty convinced during these couple of weeks that things were over. Um, I, the two weeks was just because I didn't have the heart to like break it off completely in the beginning. Um, but I remember calling a few people, a few close friends, and asking them what they thought I should do. And I remember talking to my uh, brother-in-law, and, um, and he asked, you know, well, what is it that you don't connect with? What are the things you don't like about Janice? And, and I told him all the things, and he basically said back to me, are you crazy? You don't like the fact that she won't pick out the restaurant when you go out to eat, right? Like, that's the biggest complaint you have about her? Are you crazy? And, and everyone said the same thing, and they basically came back to me and said, look, <laughs> If those are the things that you don't like, then you're making a bad decision. You're being rash. You're not being patient. You're not seeing all the amazing things here. Uh, unless there's more to it, if those are the things and this is the decision you're about to make, you are going to make the worst mistake of your entire life. That was their advice. Pretty good advice, right? <laughs> So that's the first lesson. Seek counsel from others. But, but here's the second lesson. When you're faced with a big decision, listen to the good counsel from others. By God's grace, I listened to that counsel. Rehoboam received good counsel, but he did not listen to it. 
He listened to the bad counsel that he got. And so I want to spend the last few minutes just giving you a few practical suggestions. When you do go out and seek counsel from others, how do you choose the right counselors to talk to? And then how do you use the right counselors when you do talk to them? So pretend you've got a situation in front of you where you need some advice. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've already thought of something. It's like, yeah, I could really use some good advice about this situation in my life. Here's how to choose the right counselors. Number one, choose three or four people with similar values. Choose three or four people with similar values. Uh, Talking to one person is not enough. Um, It's a great start, but you need to talk to a handful of people, and you need to talk to some people who are on the same page as you, or at least in the same ballpark as you when it comes to your beliefs or your convictions or your values. And that's not because people with different values or different beliefs are going to be wrong or are going to give you bad advice. It just helps when you're talking to others to talk to people who at least share the same general perspective and values in life as you do. Number two, choose some who are ahead of you in life. Simply put, find some people who are headed in the same direction that you want to go in, and are maybe even farther along in that direction, are a few steps in front of you. People who are maybe a little bit older than you, who have been in your shoes, right? People who can say, uh, who you can say to, here's my situation, here are my options, and I think you've probably been here before, you've faced these kind of things, and so I'm interested in hearing your perspective and your wisdom. I want to have a great marriage, and I can see that you already have a great marriage, and so I think you've probably got some wisdom to offer me. I've got this issue at my work or in my career, and you're in the same career, or I know you've got a similar situation that you've been involved in at your work, and so you probably have some wisdom to offer me. Choose and talk to a few people who are in front of you. If you're in middle school or high school, right, find somebody that's in college or someone that's a few years out of college that that you can talk to who still remembers what it was like to be in those kinds of situations and can give you good advice or give you good counsel. This is really important. Rehoboam didn't listen to the people that were ahead of him. He listened to his peers. He listened to the people who were beside him. So that's number two. And here's number three. Uh, choose some who are able to tell you the truth. When you feel stuck, you need to get some advice from at least one or two people who are willing to tell you the truth and have nothing to lose by it. Which means probably including one or two people who are not your spouse, who are not in your immediate family, who are maybe not even really close friends of yours. And this is tough because our tendency when we want to ask for advice is just to ask our closest friends, to ask the people who are closest to us. But oftentimes, they're not entirely objective. They might be emotionally involved in whatever decision you make. They might not have a removed enough perspective. And again, that was Rehoboam's fault. He, he, listen to the advice of his friends who were not objective, who were actually serving him, who had the most to gain from doing what they said to do. And so this is hard for us at times. Sometimes too, because we have the tendency to ask people for advice that we think are going to tell us what we want to hear. And we need to pick one or two people who aren't afraid to tell us the hard truth, 
who have nothing to lose by saying, I I know this is maybe what you don't want to hear, but this is what I think you need to do. So that's how to choose the right counselors. And if you choose the right counselors, chances are most of the time you'll make the right decision. But here's how to use the right counselors. Just a few more tips how to use the right counselors. Number one, ask God to speak through that person. This is so easy. Before you talk to somebody, literally take 30 seconds or a minute to just pray, hey God, I'm about to talk to this person. I need their counsel. Would you speak through them? And would you help me to listen? Just that quick prayer helps you remember that God can speak to you through other people, and it opens your heart to be receptive to listening for what the Spirit might say. Number two, uh, meet with them in person or over the phone. Um, Email is a terrible way to get advice from someone. You can't really explain fully what you're asking for. You can't give the full context. They can't explain really well back to you what they think you should do. If this is a big decision, it's important to meet with somebody in person. So carve out an hour. If it's not a very big decision, if it's just something sort of smaller, call them on the phone and say, hey, can I have 10 minutes? I just want to run something by you real quick and get your advice. But anything important in life shouldn't be done over email. Do it in person. Number three, ask them if any of the options you're considering conflict with your values. It's a simple way to say, hey, I want to make sure that whatever I do here is honest. Whatever I do here is is loving. Whatever I do here is is in line with the kind of character that I want to have and the kind of beliefs that I have. And so, hey, I just want to ask you, here's a few options I'm considering in this situation. Do you see if any of these options would conflict with the kind of character that I want to have or the kind of beliefs that I do have? Number four, ask them what they feel is the wisest option. And this is such an important question to say, okay, here are my two or three options that I'm considering. What do you think is the wisest option? And that's important because at those times that we feel stuck, there's usually not a really clear black and white answer. We're usually not asking people, hey, um, I'm thinking about cheating on my husband. I'm just wondering what the right option is, right? That, I'm thinking about robbing a bank. Do you have any insights into what? Like, those are not the kind of questions that we're asking people for. We're asking people for things where it seems like all the options are possible and none of them is morally wrong or, or it's not black and white. And so in light of all that, the best thing to do is to step back and say, hey, I respect you and I trust you and you know me. And so in light of my past and in light of where you think that I want to go, what do you think is the wisest option for me to consider here? And then number five, ask them to hold you accountable to make the wise decision. In other words, you can say to them, hey, I I really appreciate your input and your wisdom here. And I'm going to ask a couple of others for some wisdom as well. And and I need to make a decision in the next couple of days, or I'm going to make a decision by next week. And so would you circle back around with me and just ask me what decision I made? And that's important. Because now you're not just asking for their input and then moving on. You're actually asking them to be involved, to walk with you through this important decision. And maybe that's all you need sometimes. 
Maybe you have a situation in front of you and you kind of deep down already know what you should do. You already know probably what the wisest decision is. You just need a couple more people to affirm it. You need a couple more people to give you permission to pursue it. You need a few more people to come around you and say, yes, that is the wise thing. And you need to be bold and courageous. And I'll stand beside you and I'll be cheering you on. And I will encourage you. How can I help you make this decision? If you feel stuck in any way in your life right now, Would you consider seeking counsel from others and then listening to what they have to say? I don't think there's any verse that sums it up better than this verse in the Proverbs. It says this, without good direction, people lose their way. The more wise counsel you follow, the better your chances. Let me pray for us. God, we are faced with um, decisions all the time. And we're faced with situations in our lives where we really do need your wisdom and your input. And we know that you've surrounded us with friends um, and even people who maybe we're not close to but could offer the wisdom and the answers and the insights that we need to hear. And so I pray today that you would help us to trust you in that process. I pray that if any of us are stubborn, and I can certainly be that, self-sufficient, think like, think we can find the answers on our own, have that deep-seated feeling that I don't need to ask for help. I pray that you would break through that and you would help us to trust the community of people and the community of faith that you surrounded us with and trust you in the process. Pray this in your name. Amen.